हेलो एवरीबॉडी ग्रेट टू बी विथ यू हैव अ गुड इवनिंग हैव अ गुड डे सो लेट्स सी हु ऑल इज विथ अस सो एज यू नो टुडे इज द 41st लाइव एपिसोड ऑफ आस्क अभिजीत टुडे वी डिस्कस इंडियन हिस्ट्री एंड लेट्स सी हु ऑल वी हैव विथ अस वी हैव विनीत जिग्नेश ओमकार राजकुमार सोविक गुप्ता हर्ष विश्वकर्मा प्रखर नेहा आदित्य अभिलाष पार्थ देसाई सोमिया आनंद शंखजीत अभिजीत कुणाल डोंगर सिंग अमित वसु आर्यन विनय हर्षा अभिलाष चंदना फिरदोस ऋषभ एंड मेनी अदर पीपल नवनीत पार्था गुड इवनिंग गुड डे एवरीबॉडी इट्स ग्रेट टू बी बैक विथ यू so today we discuss indian history i have chosen a large number of questions that you have asked in the comments and let us begin with question number 1 so question number 1 is by harbinger can you shed some light on the abbasid caliphate in invasion of india and their defeat so let us understand what these caliphates are what are these caliphates so there were four major caliphates so a caliphate is an islamic system of governance the head of state is called the caliph and it essentially is ruled by sharia law so there were four major caliphates in the islamic world the first one was the rashidun caliphate which started i think in 632 ad uh right after the death of the prophet of islam and it lasted until 661 ad and the capital of this caliphate was in madina and in kufa so this is the rashidun caliphate the second major caliphate is the uh, umayyad caliphate which was from 661 to 750 ad its capital was damascus the third caliphate was the abbasid caliphate the one you have mentioned its capital was baghdad mostly and it it uh, its period was from 750 ad to 1258 ad it ended with the destruction of baghdad by the mongol empire under hulagu khan and the fourth and last major caliphate was the ottoman caliphate which was based in constantinople it was the ottoman empire and the caliphate so the ottoman emperor was the caliph so the question you asked is about the abbasid caliphate the third caliphate between 750 ad and 1258 ad so if you look at the first uh, islamic invasion of india the very first attempt to invade india it was during the umayyad caliphate when this guy called muhammad bin qasim tried to tried to invade sindh the western part of india and he was successful to a small extent he was able to defeat i think raja dahir was it and uh, he so there was a first person who actually was able to capture a small piece of indian territory so that was parts of balochistan and and the western part of sindh now the abbasid caliphate that time duration saw a great number of uh, turkic invasions into india so these were islamic invasions for sure but these were not from the abbasid caliphate itself these invasions came in from the northwest of india from the turkic uh, occupied territories of central asia so there were many such invasions many uh, waves of invasions you had invasions by the afghans who had been con- converted to islam so you had so uh, afghanistan was also be- being ruled by turkic dynasties first you had the ghoris and then you had the ghaznavids etc right and then you had the invasion by the mamluk dynasty 
these slave sultans who who invaded india and who were able to capture small parts of northern india and gradually wave by wave they were able to uh, extend their uh, dom- their rule further into other parts of india so this is all about the uh, turkic invasions which happened between uh, the 10th 9th 10th centuries until the, until the 13th century approximately so this is the time duration of the abbasid caliphate and that's when you had all these multiple waves of turkic invasions and there was fierce resistance to these invasions from mostly the people from northern and western india the rajputs essentially there was fierce resistance for centuries there were so many waves of invasions and the indians were able to repel them repeatedly decade after decade century after century until eventually uh, these guys were ma- were able to make some major breakthroughs so that in brief is about the invasions of india during the uh, time period of the abbasid caliphate so these were not invasions from the caliphate itself these were turkic invasions from the northwest of india mainly through the khyber pass so that's about this question let's move on to the next one so sanjay says shakas or skythians are not indian then why is the skythian shaka calendar our national calendar and not the vikram samvat calendar okay so let's understand who the skythians were so the skythians were the uh, the people they were nomadic peoples in today's uh, academic uh, environment they are classified as iranian peoples okay and these are peoples who uh, these were nomads nomadic clans and tribes who peopled the entirety of the central asian eurasian plateau the, the entire steppe region of of uh, eurasia from eastern europe all the way into the xinjiang the present day xinjiang region of china so these were various uh, they call them iranic peoples which i completely disagree with okay now who who are these people you say they were not indian say they certainly invaded india from outside of uh, of the geography of india but who were these people what was their culture what was their ancestry so as we know and as we have discussed before on this channel there were many waves of migrations out of india many thousands of years before today these are attested in ancient vedic texts etc during the mahabharat era even before the mahabharat era during the rigvedic era etc there was this battle of 10 kings and many clans were expelled out of india they had to go into exile they never came back so these peoples these clans vedic clans post vedic clans etc various kings kingdoms they went out of india they went essentially north west of india and north of india so the region north of india came to be known as uttar kurul which is the present day tarim basin region of uh, present day china uh, the so called xinjiang region so that was known as uttar kuru and there was another region called uttar madra which is the region near the caspian sea so the whole of central asia essentially so this was peopled by indians by indian clans and tribes that that migrated out of india some went into exile after losing battles or wars some just moved out for for greener pastures or whatever the reason was so there were many waves of migration out of india these were uh, originally vedic and post vedic clans later on their rituals changed they stopped uh, following the vedic uh, traditions 
properly and therefore they came to be considered and, and categorized as, as mlechas because they were no longer their rituals were no longer pure but these were uh, the descendants of indian people and it is their descendants who came to be known as the shaka people the skithian people and uh, there has been plenty of dna analysis of various skithian mummies etc and we know what they looked like in in uh, popular uh, in popular art they are they are shown as having blue eyes and blonde hair and red hair and white skin but if you look at their uh, if you actually examine their dna and multiple tests have been done it's very clear what they look like they had light brown skin they had dark hair and they had brown eyes so that's what the, these Scythians looked like. So they were the descendants of ancient Indians. And they invaded India. So it was a circular migration. Ancient Indians went out of India, populated the, the Eurasian steppe region. And many thousand years, many thousands of years later, they re-invaded India. They, they re-migrated back into India. So they were, you could say they were not Indians because they came from beyond India's geographical domain, but they were the descendants of Indians. And it is well known that their culture and uh, all of that was quite similar to that of India. And it is well known that there was no friction between the uh, Scythians who came into India and assimilated into the Indian population. There was no friction between them and the Indian people. So it's clear that their language was very, very similar. The culture was also very similar. They were sun worshippers, essentially. They worshipped the sun. So these are the Scythians, the Shakas. Now, uh, there are two, like you said, there are two calendars in, actually there were multiple calendars in ancient India. There is a calendar that is uh, based on the, on the date of Nirvana of Mahavir, which is in the 6th century, I think, BCE, right? So there's a calendar based on that. There was an older calendar called the Saptarshi calendar, which was in the 6th, from the 6th millennium BCE, 6000 something BCE. So that's when it started. Can you imagine how ancient our civilization is? That we were we were reckoning time from 6000 BCE or thereabouts. And then we had these two calendars, the Shaka calendar and the Vikram Samvat calendar. So I think the Vikram Samvat calendar is, uh, when was it? Uh, it was somewhere, the Vikram era begins, I think, in 57 BCE. So the, so the story is that the great uh, emperor Vikramaditya of Ujjain was able to defeat invading Scythians, invading Shaka people. He was able to defeat them and repulse their invasion. And this was commemorated by the starting of this new Vikram Samvat era in, I think, 57 BCE. So that is the Vikram Samvat calendar, the Vikram Samvat era. And then you have the Shaka era, which is 78 AD. So it's more than a century. It starts more than a century after the Vikram Samvat era. And it essentially commemorate it, it marks the coming to power of the Scythian king Chashtana, who was a who was a king of the western Kshatrapas. Uh, his his domain was I think also Ujjain if I'm not mistaken. But uh, his kingdom he had, he had a large kingdom it was in western India the western Kshatrapa dynasty was he was one of the major kings of this uh, of this particular dynasty. So his coming to power happened, I think, in 78 AD. And that is the beginning of the Shaka era, the Scythian calendar. And this was what was adopted in India after this time. The Shaka calendar was, is also adopted. It was also used to a great extent in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, Bali, and various other parts. The Champa kingdom, the Funan kingdom, uh, 
and maybe even in the Philippines. So it was a very widespread calendar. Now, why was this calendar taken as the national calendar instead of the Vikram Samvat? I don't really know. Maybe there's some political reason or what it was. Maybe, you know how the Nehruvian regime was, right? Uh, they like to glorify invaders and they maybe consider these Scythians as invaders, even though they were like not really very different from Indians. They did not impose a foreign culture on India. They assimilated harmoniously into Indian culture. But whatever is the reason, they this... The Scythian calendar, the Shaka calendar was adopted as India's national calendar, even though many Indians, many Hindus still reckon time based on the Vikram Samvat era. So I think in India's official communications in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and various ministries, there are two dates given in each communique. One is this the Christian date and one is the uh, Shaka date based on the Shaka calendar. Maybe we should introduce the third one, the Vikram Samvat calendar as well. Uh, so it, it makes sense to have a national calendar that is based in our own based in our own traditions. So that's what it is. That's the that's the Shaka calendar. So that that's the answer in in brief. Next question. J.K. says there are two questions. What is the first question is what's the origin and history of the Patel caste of Gujarat? I've read somewhere they came down from the Pamir. Valley in today's Tajikistan, is it true? Uh, and the second question is, there's a theory by someone called whatever that the Asiatic lands in Gujarat were brought into India recently by the Mughals from Persia for hunting purposes. But we know that the Ashok pillar, the Ashok Stamb is two and a half thousand years old. It's a very, very famous symbol of India. So is there any evidence that lions were present in India during the Harappan era? Okay, as regards the first question, I don't really know. Uh, what is the origin of the Patel caste? Is it a caste? I'm not sure, sure it's a caste. The, caste the, the word caste is of foreign origin. We don't have castes in India. Of course, today we are classified as into, into four castes because of the colonial government. But we had the Varnajati system, which is a much more complex system. The Patels, I think, are an agricultural people. They're not only uh, found in Gujarat. You have Patels in Maharashtra also, I think, even in Karnataka, even in Madhya Pradesh, etc. So I think it's these are this, this is a farming community, community, agricultural community, quite prosperous. Today you find them all over the world, especially in the United States, North America, etc. You see Patels everywhere. Every motel is owned by a Patel. But I don't really know what is the origin. Did do they come from the Pamirs? I I don't really know. I don't think they are from the Pamirs. It's not one ethnicity. It's it's a it's kind of a title. It's kind of a occupation that you're a Patel means you're a farmer, if I am not mistaken. That's what I know. I am not an expert in this topic. So that's all I have to say about that. Question two is about lions. Did the Mughals bring lions into India? Uh, have we been, we been blessed by the Mughals in the, in the form of them introducing lions into India? Well, that's completely nonsense. I, I don't know where this uh, myth has come from. Lions have been uh, found in India for thousands of years. So let me um, share the screen. There you are. This is a clay jar of sorts from the Harappan era. It's probably five, five and a half thousand years old. It clearly depicts a lion. So it is clear that the Harappan, uh, the, the Harappan era of our civilization, uh, we had lions in India at the time. 
Yeah, I think we have found fossilized remains of lions that go much beyond before that time itself. And it's well known that lions were found throughout India, not only in Gujarat. It's only recently that they've gone extinct from, from all over Asia. So in the past, lions were found all the way up to Bengal, present-day Bangladesh, present-day West Bengal, and Madhya Pradesh and other parts of India. I think even some parts of southern India as well. They were found in Sindh, in, in, in Punjab, western India, Balochistan, and they were also found in Persia, in Iran, and even in parts of Turkey and, and, and also in Arabia. But uh, because of colonization, mostly these lions were hunted down. And today they are only found in the Gir forest region of, of, of Saurashtra in Gujarat. So like I showed you, the, the lions were very well known during the Harappan times. So the Harappan times were the... So in India, India was the only uh, geographical region, only civilization that knew not only the lion but also the tiger. So this is a depiction of a tiger from a Harappan era clay tablet. You can see there's a person on a platform kind of thing on a tree and there's a tiger looking at that, that individual. So this is a depiction of a tiger from the Harappan era. And here we have a depiction of a lion. Isn't that interesting? So uh, to answer again in brief, to conclude, lions have been known in India for thousands of years. They have always been part of this landscape. Okay, next question. Recently, the famous Bollywood director Kabir Khan said that he feels bad whenever Mughals are portrayed in an evil manner in movies because they were nation builders. What do you think of this statement and do you agree with it? Mughals, nation builders, they were more like nation destroyers. They were foreign invaders foreign occupiers. They did not build India. They did not strengthen India. They did not promote India's national interest in the sense that the civilizational interest. They did not promote India's culture. On the contrary, they destroyed India's culture. They, they went out of their way to systematically destroy India's culture and try to impose a foreign culture and religion on India. So I do not see how this is nation building of any sort. They, are, they were certainly trying to construct a different kind of nation. They were trying to warp, distort India, the Indian uh, civilization and convert it into something foreign. So I do not see that as nation building. I see that as a an oppressive, tyrannical activity. And I don't... And if you examine the life and career of each of the so-called Turco-Mughal uh, kings, from whether it starts from... Babar, Humayun, Akbar, and whoever else came after them, up to Aurangzeb and the lesser kings, they were all tyrants. They were all oppressors. None of them did anything good for India. Yeah, sure, they built certain monuments and all by destroying Indian uh, architecture, sacred architecture, and repurposing the stones and bricks into, into building something else. And all of that was built with Indian labor and Indian money, with money extracted out of India. So I don't think we have anything to thank them for. And they were not nation builders. Now, when it comes to this individual Kabir Khan, I remember he his first movie was called Kabul Express. Now, I don't watch Bollywood movies. I, have, I may have seen maybe one or two Bollywood movies in the past 10 years. Recently, I tried to watch this Sher Shah movie. I could not last more than 10 minutes. It was atrocious this love story and whatever it was. So my point is, I don't watch Bollywood movies, but in 2000 and 
five, six, seven. Sometime around then, he came up with this movie called Kabul Express. I had seen, I had watched that movie at the time. And if you see that movie, there is so much racism against the against the Hazara people of Afghanistan. They are portrayed as donkeys and they are portrayed as subhumans in this movie. So this is the kind of attitude these Bollywood directors have. And then they come back and lecture us about nation building and the greatness of these Mughals. Come on. They are the last people to lecture us about anything. Bollywood doesn't depict Indian culture. It is not something that that strengthens India's culture and India's soft power. It is something that tries to misportray India. So these are the last people we need to take advice from or, or to learn anything from. If you look at their so-called historical movies, they all distort history. And they only show a certain flavor of history, you know, a certain ideological flavor of history. So the best thing we should do is to boycott Bollywood, stop watching Bollywood movies. There are plenty other forms of entertainment that are available today. So that it is best to just render these people irrelevant. Okay, Joseph Matthew says, what is the religion according to you? Do you? Why do you consider monotheism, polytheism and atheism to be all part of Hinduism? And what is the culture of a land? How much is there between religion and culture? Yeah, so I have uh, spoken about this in the past, I think a couple of times perhaps. So do I, okay, what's a religion? So religion is a Western concept. In India, we have the concept of dharma, which is a very much wider concept. In the Western uh, perception of religion, a religion is something that has one prophet, one God and one book and everybody follows that. That is the Western concept of religion and that uh, that has been uh, force-fitted on Eastern cultures. So Eastern cultures are have always been polytheistic. Even the ancient Arabic culture was, was polytheistic actually. So this foreign western abrahamic concept of one book one prophet one god has been force fitted on eastern cultures eastern traditions and that's how today we all see it because this is the way we are taught about religion so then we they have imposed this ism suffix onto eastern traditions hinduism tengriism confucianism taoism uh, and whatever else shintoism so that's the kind of thing that's been done. Uh, our traditions are very, very diverse, very wide. Now, why do I consider monotheism, polytheism, atheism to be part of Hinduism? Well, it's so what is Hinduism? It's essentially a number of ancient philosophical traditions, a number of interrelated, interconnected philosophical schools of thoughts, thought that are extremely diverse. So I have spoken about this in the past. Let me give you a very brief overview again. So we have, I think, eight or nine schools of thought in Hinduism, major schools of thought. There are many other smaller schools of thought. The first one is Charvaka, which is atheism. It is pure materialism. It, it rejects the existence of God. Then you have the Jaina school of thought, Jaina philosophy, which does believe in karma and rebirth. But it is also an atheistic school of thought. It rejects the existence of any God. Then you have the Bodha philosophy, which is again a Dharmic philosophy. It believes in karma and rebirth, but it is again mostly atheistic. It, it rejects the existence of God. Then you have Nyaya, which is realistic. It is a realistic philosophy based upon logic. So in Nyaya, the Atma or the self is distinct from the mind and the body. There is karma and rebirth and it does believe in the existence of God. 
that is nyaya then you have veshashik in which you there is the belief in in karma and rebirth and there is a belief in the existence of god then you have the sankhya philosophy which is dualistic realism in which there is no need for god then you have yoga philosophy which admits the existence of god and it is essentially a form of sankhya theistic sankhya then you have mimamsa which is based upon the vedas so in this philosophy the soul is immortal it is eternal but there is no supreme god there is no creator god so this is a, a skeptical theory atheistic theory to some extent it does believe in the law of karma it says this law is an autonomous natural and moral rule law that rules the world and finally we have vedanta which says that there exists a supreme person who permeates the entire universe and yet who remains beyond it so these are the major schools of thought of what we call hinduism today as you can see there is such a wide panoply of ideas and beliefs and uh, and it's uh, different systems so you have monotheistic aspects to it like vedanta says there is a supreme person who permeates the universe and yet is beyond it so you could interpret that as kind of being monotheistic but there are so many different aspects of this divinity which manifest them themselves in, in a variety of ways which we call these different gods right 64 crore gods or whatever the hell they call it in hinduism it's not 64 crore gods this is the western concept it's a western myth anyhow so you have polytheism you have monotheism you also have skepticism in atheism you have materialism and you have spiritualism and what not so it's a very diverse tradition so many different schools of thought and therefore all of these schools of thought they encompass all of these different viewpoints and philosophies and they are all part of hinduism however the abrahamic atheism uh, abrahamic monotheism is in no way part of dharma it is actually adharma if you if you look at it strictly because it it talks about one god one prophet and one book and everybody is forced to believe that you can't go beyond that there is no you're not allowed to question anything you have to blindly obey blind obedience that is not a dharmic way of looking at anything so those uh belief systems are clearly not part of hinduism but the ones i just mentioned the various ancient indian schools of thought philosophical thought those diverse viewpoints are all part of hinduism now what's the difference between a culture and a religion well in the case of the eastern traditions there's very little difference between culture and religion because what what we call hinduism is not really a religion because we don't have one book one god and one prophet we have so many different viewpoints so that is all uh, whatever practices you have in in a society in in a civilization like india that's all culture so it manifests itself in the way you dress the kind of dress you wear the kind of languages you speak the the kind of festivals you celebrate the kind of traditions you follow um the kind of practices you have rituals you have all of that the kind of music you play the kind of cuisine you have all of that forms what's called culture and clearly the uh, what is called religion is a major component of that so i hope this explains in brief what this is all about Okay eagle eye says did ancient indians know that the earth was round <laughs> that's a good question so we know what, what is the oldest known language in the world it is sanskrit right now 
just we just have to ask this simple question what is the word for geography in sanskrit word for geography in sanskrit is bhugol shastra bhugol vigyan and bhugol vidya now what does bhugol mean bhu means the earth and what does gol mean it means spherical so bhugol shastra bhugol vidya bhugol vigyan is essentially the science of this spherical earth that's your answer of course we knew in the past in ancient india that the earth was round we never believed in a flat in the flat earth theory okay uh adwait says why wasn't there a huge migration of the middle eastern population into india during the muslim rule india was a much better place to live than in a desert and there was also no shortage of hindu slaves and they could also have outnumbered the local hindu population in a few places etc all that so the question is was there a huge migration of uh, the middle eastern population into india during the uh, turkic etc occupation of india so that is a question that lots of people have asked there's this uh, and uh, so so let's let's take a look at look at uh, a research paper let me quickly share that with you let's take a look at it in brief so uh here we are so this is a research paper from the journal of human genetics diverse genetic origin of indian muslims evidence from autosomal str loci loci and it's by a number of authors it's from 2009 so what it says is that um uh it says that in the daudi bohras of tamil nadu and gujarat and the iranian shias there is a significant genetic contribution from west asia especially iran so there does seem to be a little bit what they call minor gene flow from western asia in certain segments certain minor segments of the indian muslim population but apart from that the like it says it says that this study reveals that the spread of the islamic faith in the indian sub- indian subcontinent was predominantly a cultural transformation associated with minor gene flow from west asia so that is the evidence that we have and you can look up other research papers as well all of these show similar results so what we find is that the indian muslims are mostly like 99% of them are of indian local origin whether it is indian muslims or pakistani muslims or bangladeshi muslims or afghan muslims or sri lankan muslims or whoever else within the subcontinent the muslims are overwhelmingly of indian ancestry there's only a few small populations like the daudi bohras or whoever it is who have some uh, significant contribution from west asia from for everybody else it's just indian dna indian origin uh, so so the the reason for this is that see it's very hard for a huge population to migrate thousands of kilometers it what what happened during the turkic and other invasions of india was that there was a, these small bands of marauders a few thousand swordsmen horsemen who came with uh, in the form of armies who conquered parts of india and then subjugated the population there oppressed the population there and forcibly converted them to their culture and religion so that's how it happened this was all usually male mediated invasions there were very few females who would come into the as invaders right 
So it was always that sort of a thing. It's always male mediated. It's always military expansion, which means uh, soldiers, armies. So that's usually a few 10,000 people, 10, 20, 50,000, maybe 100,000 at, at maximum in those days. And that was just a drop, a, a droplet of water in the enormous population of the Indian subcontinent. And therefore, it did not make any significant genetic impact in the Indian uh, genetic landscape. And that's why we find that there is very little uh, genetic component from West Asia in India's Muslims. Okay, Ravi says, what's the role of the Roman Catholic Church in the prosecution and the genocide of Aboriginal cultures in Goa and the rest of the world? And if Hitler is a bad guy for the genocide of the Jews, why is the Roman Catholic Church never held accountable for the Aboriginal cultural and human genocide it committed all over the world? Very good question. So the answer is very simple. History is written by the winners. So all your history textbooks, all of the analysis that you find from all these so-called scholars and historians and experts and authors and writers, it's all from a Eurocentric perspective. It's all from a Christian perspective, right? And therefore, this genocide, this horrifying genocide that these people perpetrated with the consent, with the uh, with the blessing of the Catholic Church, etc. It's it's all white. It, it's all blanked out. It is not mentioned. And our historians also are under the sway of these people. They, our historians are essentially coolies. They are sepoys of the West. And therefore, they also do not write about it. They do not speak about this. History is always written by the winners. Now, there is an interesting question. People, have, Some people have asked me. The Vikings, the Scandinavian Vikings of Western Europe, Northwestern Europe, they were able to conquer many Christian kingdoms and sack those kingdoms, pillage them. They destroyed many monasteries. They killed lots of hundreds, maybe thousands of Christian monks, etc. So how come history does not portray them in good light? Because if you see the history, the the, the way these people have been depicted in, in uh, medieval and later European historical accounts, they are portrayed as savages and barbarians. It's only now that the Hollywood is making serials about the Vikings. Historically, they have been portrayed as savages, even though they were able to destroy many Christian kingdoms. So if they won, why are they portrayed in such a manner? And the answer is very simple. Because eventually the church won. Eventually, even the Vikings got converted into Christianity. The Scandinavian nations are all, are all Christian. They have all been Christian until recently. So in the long term, the church won and the Vikings lost. So even though they had success at the time, they eventually lost. And the people with the pens were all Christian monks. So that's how it goes. So the history is always written by the winners. And that's why you find all this. So Hitler lost. He lost. And therefore, he is portrayed as, as a monster, even though there have been many worse monsters. I am not saying Hitler was not a monster. He was a barbaric monster. He was cruel. He was brutal. He killed so many Jews and, and Indian origin Romani people. And he deserves to be held in contempt and portrayed as a monster, which he was. But there are many worse monsters. What the what the church did, the Inquisition and whatnot, the brutality and genocide of the of the people of the Americas, South America, North America, the genocide in India, at least 100 million people died at, the, at these people's hands and so much more. 
and yet no one writes about this it's because they won and today the entire narrative is controlled by these people so that needs to change next question why do we depict so many of our gods and characters from itihasa as light skinned when they were clearly mentioned as dark skinned krishna arjun draupadi etc do you think that if hindu artwork depicted various skin tones found throughout india accurately it would help combat the aryan dravidian bullshit yeah so so this uh, so there does seem to be this obsession with fairer skin in india uh in in uh, contemporary artwork there is a certain bias towards people who have fairer skin and there is there are depictions of in, of older ancient people also in uh, in this in this kind of manner uh, our gods the dark skin gods are now depicted as blue whether it is lord krishna or lord i don't know about if lord rama was dark skin or not we don't know about that but he is also depicted with this blue shade of skin and so is lord shiva now the thing is this it's not always been like that so let me give you an example example uh, a picture speaks a thousand words so this here is a painting from the ajanta caves i think it's in maharashtra isn't it the ajanta caves now take a look at this this is clearly a beautiful lovely lady from our ancient past one of our ancestors she has dark skin and this is portrayed as the ideal of beauty right so there was nothing against dark skin in ancient india before the various invasions and occupation of india so there you go that's one example here's another one this again is a person very graceful aesthetic looking person with significantly dark skin here you have a number of ladies who all have dark skin some are playing instruments one seems to be a royalty person or whatever whatever so they all have dark skin and there was nothing against dark skin in those days here you see lord buddha himself depicted as having significantly dark skin now we know that the lord buddha was from northern india so he one would imagine that he would have lighter colored skin and yet in southern india in maharashtra the ajanta case he is depicted as be, as having dark skin so it is very clear from these examples there are thousands more examples i have just given you a few so it's very clear from these examples that there was no bias in ancient india uh, about about dark skin right there was no bias against dark skin there was no uh, there was no obsession with fair skin in ancient india all skin colors were equally well accepted they were all taken as as, as pleasing and aesthetic so it is this this past 1000 years of india's history this period of foreign occupation subjugation colonization that has uh, made that has changed india's pers- the, pe- the perception of the people of india into regarding people with lighter skin as superior because earlier it was the turks who who, are, who mostly have lighter skin than indians on average and then you have this you had the europeans who have uh, lighter skin again than indians so these guys won indians lost and therefore we started looking upon them looking at them as being superior to us and what what was the common factor lighter skin so this is a very recent phenomenon india's history is 10 maybe 10000 or more years old this is something that happened in the past 1000 years in the past millennium of humiliation so it is all about deconditioning ourselves from this nonsense it is about decolonizing our minds getting 
rid of this slave mentality that permeates so many indian minds all skin colors are equally beautiful that is what we have to start understanding again okay parth says what are your views about beef eating is it right to ban slaughtering of cows in india let's see it from a different perspective there are many states in the united states where the slaughter of horses is banned it is banned by law you cannot slaughter horses because in many countries especially europe etc they people actually eat horse meat in the us the slaughter of horses in most states is banned so why is this why why does, does doesn't this uh, offend some people why doesn't it go against freedom of choice why why don't people protest against this but this is the us right they are superior to us so we should not question them there are many i mean not many every single islamic country bans pork now does anybody protest that no it is their country it is their religion their culture and they have the right to do whatever they whatever their religion prescribes whatever their culture prescribes they have the right to do it and they are justified in my opinion to ban the consumption the sale or whatever of pork and similarly the americans are fully justified in banning the slaughter of horses so why is india singled out for this in indian culture whether it is hinduism jainism buddhism sikhism i'm not sure about buddhism but yeah in every dharmic religion in every dharmic uh perspective the slaughter of cows is the worst thing you can imagine cows have been worshiped they have been held as sacred even the sikh gurus banned cow slaughter so according to india's ancient cultural practices in in our ancient civilization it is not right to kill cows it is not right to eat beef and therefore it is completely and perfectly justified to ban cow slaughter in india now i understand in certain places in the northeast where they have never practiced hinduism in the form it is practiced in other parts of india i understand why they would be against the ban on cow uh, on on beef so maybe india can make an exception for the for certain parts of the northeast i'm not talking about manipur manipur is again hindu but maybe nagaland for example or maybe some other regions where one could imagine that we could make an exception but for the rest of india the country is perfectly justified in banning the slaughter of cows and the consumption of beef now there is this other hypocrisy also certain hindus for whatever reason eat beef today and other hindus go after them they demonize them right but the same hindus who demonize other hindus for eating beef they will worship ar rahman they will worship salman khan they will worship elon musk they will worship benjamin netanyahu all these people eat beef and they have no these hindus have no problem worshiping these beef eaters but they have a problem if some hindus eat beef i am not saying eating beef is a good thing i don't eat beef i am saying we should have a ban on cow slaughter but as of today if some hindus eat beef i think and many of them are actually in favor of hinduism they are actually hindus but they have this weakness that they can't resist the temptation of eating beef so the world is a is complex in the 21st century i think we should go a little easy on some of us hindus who still have this weakness for whatever reason of eating beef 
but i agree with you i mean my view is that the ban on beef the ban on cow slaughter is perfectly justifiable it's perfectly valid every country has the right to practice its culture right and our indigenous culture our 10000 plus year old culture says that eating beef is wrong and again cow slaughter is 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 the worst thing you can do and therefore we must put that into law and into practice okay next question since sanskrit and tamil are separate languages did they develop separately in different parts of ancient india if so why did the chola kings use sanskrit later on the problem now is is that we don't really know about the origins of these of of india's languages there's very little research been that's been done there are hardly any high quality linguists in india at all the whatever few linguists we have are the, of the caliber of iravatan mahadevan who come up with theories out of a hat and then uh, you know so we don't have any research any real proper research being done on linguistics in india our historians have no idea when our languages developed how they developed in what form they developed what came before vedic sanskrit there must have been an older form of sanskrit proto sanskrit and and linguists talk about this proto indo european language which is something they have imagined out of their dreams there is no evidence any such language actually existed i think if there was a proto indo european language it must have been proto sanskrit pre vedic sanskrit so we don't know and what about tamil when did tamil evolve when did it originate we don't have the faintest clue and therefore we have this this contest that goes on between north within the people of tamil nadu and other people about which language is older the oldest known language in the world is vedic sanskrit by the way and there is no evidence tamil is anywhere close anywhere close to it there it it is a possibility that tamil may be similar in age as vedic sanskrit but we don't have any evidence of that it is actually even possible that languages like telugu may be older than sanskrit than tamil okay so tamil is not the the language that represents the whole of south india but we know that it's an ancient language it's, it's one of india's classical languages we don't know because there is no research about this so we don't know when these languages developed how old they are it is clear that there were many that india the indian subcontinent was a very complex environment there are clearly multiple languages language families that came out of this region we know from genetic data that the indian subcontinent is the original founder zone of the out of africa migration it is from india from the indian subcontinent that the entire rest of the world was populated so india is clearly the birthplace of all these ancient languages but we don't know when the seed of sanskrit was formed when the seed of tamil emerged we don't know these things so so i can't answer nobody can answer as of today right now why did the chola kings use sanskrit so like i have said many times sanskrit is india's civilizational language today's dravidian parties have have brainwashed the people of southern india especially tamil nadu into believing that there is a the aryan dravidian divide and uh, the ancient tamil culture was a secular culture a non hindu culture all that nonsense absolute nonsense absolute garbage absolute rubbish the cholas were tamil speaking people the chola dynasty is one of the longest reigning dynasties in known history 
it was in power for 1500 years 1500 years incredible isn't it and they even though they were tamil speakers when they conquered the entirety of southeast asia they propagated hinduism and sanskrit throughout these regions they did not propagate tamil we do have tamil in malaysia today we do have we do have tamil spoken in singapore today it is because of later tamil migrations during the british colonial era it is not because of the cholas look at the names of people in indonesia they have sanskrit names not tamil names look at the names of ancient cities and kingdoms in southeast asia the champa kingdom other kingdoms look at the names of their kings they are all indian hindu names sanskrit names right so throughout the indian subcontinent in ancient days they have we had the two language system everybody would learn their mother tongue and everybody would learn the civilizational language sanskrit and sanskrit always took precedence as the high language as the prestige language as the civilizational language as the language that bound the entire civilization together from balochistan and sindh all the way to the philippines it was one civilization it was one culture that that was practiced throughout this region and the glue that bound everything together what was what we call hinduism today and it was the sanskrit language and that's why the cholas used sanskrit and that's why they propagated sanskrit everywhere they conquered okay next question this is by saherul haq why do some indo european languages have grammatical genders but some don't how does a language become gender neutral and why does hindi have this weird grammar of assigning gender to inanimate objects by the way i am a native bengali speaker so you are right there is this thing about uh, gender in in uh, so uh, the oldest known language in human history is vedic sanskrit now vedic sanskrit is a very complex language it has this gender structure there are three genders in ancient vedic sanskrit and classical sanskrit of parini as well you have the masculine gender the feminine gender and you have a neutral gender as well so for instance take take the word for bird which is pakshi pakshi is the word for bird in sanskrit it's a neutral it, it's it it is it's a gender neutral word it has the neutral gender But now you have certain species of pakshi let's say kokila kokilaha or or sarika so these are two different species of bird both of these birds have masculine and feminine genders within them but the names of these species of birds sarika and and kokila are feminine names right now take the name of uh, what is the word for horse in sanskrit it's ashwa now ashwa is a masculine word even though horses have male and female genders both but the noun ashwa is a masculine noun take an inanimate object let's say the common kitchen knife churika churika in sanskrit that's a feminine noun even though it's an inanimate object so most likely it is proto sanskrit which was the mother of all the indo european languages right and you find this sort of uh, gender uh grammatical genders in various indo european languages now you know in in uh, in the western uh, world view 
the people of ancient older times were very simple and the people who came later were more evolved and the 21st century we are the most evolved people that we that the planet earth has ever seen now if we look at the sanskrit language it is a highly complex language and the history of the evolution of indo european languages is the history of the loss of complexity so the descendant languages of vedic sanskrit became progressively simpler and less complex right so for example the word for i was chakshu it became aksh it became aak the word for hand was hasta which became hath the word for fish was matsya which became mach so as you can see there is a loss of complexity as the languages became abrahman uh, became abrancha they underwent the process of, of abrancha which means corruption and the same happened for languages like persian like armenian for the various other indo european languages which are spoken in europe there is a gradual less, lack uh, loss of complexity and so in some languages the loss of complexity manifested itself in the form of loss of certain genders so there are certain languages in which you only have two genders there are certain languages in in which you have no gender at all to which is assigned to nouns for instance in in uh, in french you have genders every word has a gender the word for chair is chaise la chaise it's not le chaise and so on la ta le table and and so on and so forth so so words even inanimate objects have genders in french in german and other languages but in some languages the, the gender is not there so it is because of the different ways in which languages lost complexity the older and a euro indo european language is the more complex it is so that's how it happened in brief uh the process is not very well understood by linguists linguistics is not an exact science it is not even a science it is uh, a great deal of linguistics is actually all voodoo and it's all made up so unfortunately there is no linguistic no genuine linguistics research that is being done in india so i hope that changes but yeah that's how the process happened sujoy says that i have recently found about the violence of killing infidels and godless people in hymns of vedas being not able to read sanskrit i don't know how much this is true and how much is interpretation or misinterpretation can you share your views so first of all okay good question so this is a a problem that many 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 people have see there is no concept of infidels in the dharmic practices in the dharmic world view there are no infidels like i said some time ago like i demonstrated some time ago atheism is very much part is very much a one of the schools of thought or a couple of schools of thought of the dharmic uh, uh, culture so so if if somebody is atheist which means godless charvaka for example the charvakas were not killed for not believing in god i mean it was their it was their their uh, problem so to say it's your problem if you don't believe in god nobody bothered anyone for having a certain belief and again there are no infidels or kafirs in hinduism or 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 any any dharmic religion so to say right so i don't know where you have found about violence of killing infidels and godless people in the hymns of the vedas come on there's no such thing uh maybe you have read some translation 
maybe you have read some misinterpretation of the of the vedas so the the solution to this is to learn sanskrit and indians think about sanskrit as being extremely complex like quantum mechanics or something it's not sanskrit is a language that is part of ev- of the vocabulary of every indian language of of more than 90% of indian languages today whether you speak hindi or marathi or gujarati or assamese or 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 bishnupuri or manipuri or sinhalese or or tamil or telugu or or kannada or uh, or malayalam even if you speak pashto or kashmiri you will find elements of sanskrit in there even if you speak persian you will find sanskrit elements in there sanskrit is still a living breathing language it's not hard to learn sanskrit it's actually quite easy so one of the, so the best book i have found for learning sanskrit is called sanskrit swayam shikshak maybe i'll put a link in the description below maybe i will do a giveaway of that book next month i'm going to do a monthly book giveaway maybe i will give away a few copies of that book in the next giveaway so sanskrit is our civilizational language it is our ancestral language it is very easy to learn you can learn it in a few weeks you can you can acquire a good working understanding of sanskrit in just a few weeks so it's something that everybody should invest in it is an investment in your own in in improving yourself and understanding your own culture and heritage chiching says are the people from the northeast region of india from the mongolian race a uh, good question uh, this is a question people have asked me many times i think i've answered it at least once but let me i'm ha- i'm happy to answer it again so uh are the people of northeast india mongolians or descendants of mongolians or f- from the mongolian race is the question so the concept of race is a 19th century colonial concept there is no such thing as a race it is an unscientific term there is no there is no scientific definition of race there is no scientific definition of the boundaries between race and when one race ends and another race begins there is actually not even a proper scientific definition of the boundaries between species right there is no such thing as a pure race there is no such thing as a pure ethnicity there is no such thing as a pure species either right so uh, so what are the people of the northeast what is their heritage what is their ancestry so one of the ways of looking at this in in a good way is is to look at the linguistics of northeastern india so you have a number of languages in northeastern india you have a, a variety of naga languages for example you have mao rengma tankul maring koinak etc you have the kukichin languages in northeastern india you have the maithi language of of manipur you have the karbi language etc so all of these languages if you look at them if you examine them the naga languages are uh, classified under the sino tibetan language family so it is not a mongolic or mongoloid language family it's classified under the sino tibetan language family and it's more tibetan than sino actually there's very little sinic component even in the tibetan language so essentially it is a it is the naga languages of various naga languages many of which are not mutually intelligible they are all part of the so called sino tibetan language family the kukichin language again is part of the the kukichin languages are part of the sino tibetan language family the mithai language mithai language is part of the tibeto burman language family it's closer to burmese and to some extent to the tibetan language the karbi language again is part of the sino tibetan language family 
if we know the history of the northeast is very complex the people of assam the ahom people were actually uh, originally of the thai ethnicity so they spoke a thai language today's assamese language is a mixture of uh, thai words or thai thai uh, language and it has some sanskrit substratum to it and all that so it's it's kind of a mixed bag the assamese language today and similarly you have the other languages which are spoken in uh, meghalaya for example which would be part of various such local language families and so on so the the uh, the people of this region they have come as a they have they have come to inhabit this region called northeast india as a result of migrations local regional migrations from either yunnan or from the thai thai country thai regions from thailand or or burma etc the the cookies are essentially from east of india in burma but now they they are also inhabiting parts of northeast india and so on so it's a mixed bag it's a complex history it's a complex uh, bag of linguistics but there is clearly no mongolian component in this so that is the answer in brief there is no real mongolian component in in the in either the linguistics or the genetics or the ethnic heritage of the people of northeast india okay next question suyash says i believe in what you said about netaji's leadership subhash chandra bose's leadership and his iron fist rule my question is one of netaji's most trusted army commanders was habibur rahman who accompanied him on his supposed last flight so rahman later joined the attacking pakistani forces in the 1948 war of kashmir was netaji trusting the wrong persons or the wrong ideology this is a very good question so you are right one of his closest uh, and most trusted lieutenants habibur rahman who was part of the indian national army who who fought for india's independence from the british he later joined pakistan he became a pakistani and he was part of this uh, uh, invasion of kashmir and occupation of kashmir so did subhash chandra bose trust the wrong person that's the question very good question very good question here's what it is he did not trust the wrong people he trusted the right people people like habibur rahman and many other indian muslims who may have later become pakistanis they all fought under the leadership of subhash chandra bose they lived together with hindus and sikhs and other people they lived together they fought together for india's independence they bled together they died together many of them for india's independence because of the leadership of this great man subhash chandra bose it is subhash chandra bose and his vision of india that they fought for after subhash chandra bose disappeared the leadership we had in india had a very different mediocre vision of india the india they sought to construct was a distorted twisted reduced version of what india actually could have been and that leadership was not palatable to people who fought under subhash chandra bose and therefore people like rahman then went elsewhere they sought some other leadership maybe they found that pakistan is better for me now now that subhash chandra bose is no longer there they clearly believed they they clearly knew that had subhash chandra bose won then india would have been a great country and they wanted to be part of that great india 
but they did not want to be part of nehru and gandhi's india which was a mediocre version of india and that's why they they went to pakistan and it's very so that's so that's the reason they believed that pakistan could be a better country than nehru and gandhi's india so it's all about leadership it's all about vision under subhash chandra bose india would have been a completely different country and that's the country they would have loved to live in that's the country they were willing to die for it's all about leadership if you look at india and pakistan if you compare india and pakistan's foreign policy etc you will find to your great surprise and shock that pakistan implements and follows chanakya niti far better than india that is the sad truth so yes people preferred to go to pakistan than to live in gandhi and nehru's india so it doesn't mean that subhash chandra bose trusted the wrong people it means that under his leadership they they trusted and believed in him and they knew that had, had he won india would have been great so that's why they fought for him but after he disappeared whatever happened to him they preferred to join pakistan because they were they knew that pakistan for them would be better than nehru and gandhi's india Siddhant says, "Why did Gandhi love Nehru so much that he favored, fought for, and defended Nehru over every other prominent leader in the Congress Party?" Well, what do I say, my friends, except saying the truth that Gandhi was a British agent, and the British wanted Nehru to take over the leadership position of India after they handed over power, after they transferred power. and there were clearly better candidates than nehru in the congress party and therefore mr british agent mr mohandas he ensured that the will of the british was implemented and everybody else was sidelined that is the short brief and real truthful answer that mr gandhi mr mohandas gandhi was nothing more than a british agent he did not love anybody he did not even love his own wife if you look, if you ex- examine his biography and his history but he he loved the british he was a loyal servant of the british and that's why he favored nehru supported nehru fought for nehru and cleared the path for nehru to ascend to the position of prime minister of india that's it ramakrishna says that I completely agree with you that reservation dilutes the competition for people entering the tier one colleges and reduces the overall quality of students but I am someone who benefited from the same and had the incredible fortune of studying in an Indian Institute of Technology what will you advise many other students like me who might feel undeserving or discouraged for for using reservation as i know personally many quota students also face discrimination from other general category students for using reservations this is the sad state of affairs in india because of reservations that good people intelligent people bright people feel undeserving and they feel discouraged because they were able to benefit from this policy of reservations look there is no need for you to feel undeserving do not feel discouraged it is just the way it is the structure the governance system the environment in india is the way it is and you we we all have to live within that students who are able to benefit from the policy of reservation 
should obviously benefit from it. I mean, should they reject it? No. If if good fortune smiles upon you, you should embrace it. The, the fact is that all Indians are brilliant. All Indians are intelligent. Whether they are from a certain category, from a reserved category, a general category, it doesn't matter. All Indians are Indians are the most intelligent people in the world. We and history proves this. So if you benefited from reservation, well, that, that's, that's nothing more than good fortune. It doesn't mean that you are undeserving. It doesn't mean you should feel discouraged. It doesn't mean you should feel ashamed. Just make the best of your life and that's all. It doesn't matter from what kind of path you took through your education system. What really matters is what you do with the rest of your life. And if you're able to do something good, if you're able to achieve something significant, then you are clearly somebody who is very much deserving of every accolade that comes their way. So I would say that those students who benefit from reservations should benefit from them. And they should not feel ashamed of it. They should not feel undeserving. And the general category people should should not dis- discriminate against them or 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 any any such thing it's it's not anybody's fault it is the fault of the government of india i'm not talking about the present government i'm talking about the entire series of governments we have had in india who which have implemented these policies i think it began in the 1990s this reservation system they have done this for their personal benefits for getting votes, for creating vote banks and all that. It is they who are to blame for this. It is not the students or the people of India who are to blame for this. And therefore, there is, it is completely wrong to feel ashamed of it or feel that you are undeserving or to feel discouraged. It's just the way this country is right now. We will eventually move past this. We will get better leadership. We will get be- better governance in the country in the future. As of now, it's just the way it is. Okay, today we saw Ashraf Ghani abandon his people. Has an Indian king or leader ever, <clears throat> excuse me, has an Indian king or leader ever abandoned his people? The mere thought of something like this happening to India and her people scares me. So it's clear that this uh, comment was from a few days ago when Mr. Ashraf Ghani uh, fled from Afghanistan as the Taliban was taking over. The question is, has an Indian king or leader ever abandoned his people? I don't know of any Indian king who has fled from the battlefield. Indian kings have always been happy to die fighting for their principles and for their people. But has any Indian leader abandoned his people? Sadly, sadly, yes. 1962, the Chinese advanced past Arunachal Pradesh and Assam was at their mercy. And our magnificent Prime Minister Shri Jawaharlal Nehru said on All India Radio that my heart goes out for the people of Assam. He said that his heart goes out for the people of Assam. He did not order the army to fight the Chinese. He did not allow the air force to enter the battlefield. But he said that his heart went out to the people of Assam. He had given up on Assam. Mr. Nehru had abandoned the people of Assam, which was then almost the entirety of Northeast India. That is an example of an Indian leader, an elected leader, a prime minister, abandoning his people. 
remember the name shri jawaharlal nehru and i am not making this up google it it's well known that this happened dev sharma says why did great ancient indian kingdoms fall we had such great rulers and people like chanakya then why couldn't they choose a worthy successor for the kingdom and why did kingdoms like marathas and rajputs fight against each other rather than their collective goal which should have been removing turks of the subcontinent see vishnugupta chanakya chose a brilliant person as the emperor of india which was chandragupta maurya chandragupta's maurya chandragupta maurya's successor was also good his son bindusar bindusar's son was this great tyrant called ashok who nevertheless was able to rule india and consolidated the rule over the whole of the country including all the way west north etc in afghanistan etc so these so ashok may not have been a good person but he, he was a very strong ruler now why do kingdoms dynasties empires fall it's always because the succession plan goes wrong either the new leader who comes after the demise or the abdication or whatever passing on of the previous leader the new leader who comes is either weak or is undeserving so eventually after a number of great kings or emperors you always have somebody who is weak and that's where everything goes wrong in some cases you have a dynasty that lasts for more than 1000 years like the cholas almost 1500 years so they clearly had a good mechanism of succession that they were able to last that long but in the case of the marathas you know that after a few few iterations of of peshwas you had too much infighting and they squandered it away sadly and the british were able to take over in the case of the kushans you had somebody as great as the as kanishka the great who influenced the whole of asia essentially and even in his in the case of the of the kushans after kanishka you had lesser and lesser kings and eventually the kushan empire and the kushan dynasty di- disappeared the same happened with the guptas the same happened with vijayanagar empire in which case they trusted the wrong people the gilani brothers and gave them significant prominent positions in the army and they were backstabbed right aliya devaraya the last vijayanagar great king and so on and it's also a question of leadership the marathas and the rajputs they fought each other instead of uniting because there was no great leader who could unify these two competing forces a country like india i've said many times needs a towering personality a once in a thousand years kind of person to unify the subcontinent so it is that it is these factors that have caused the the demise of ancient indian kingdoms from time to time get great golden ages like the gupta era etc and again it 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 ended then you had this period of fragmentation and because india was fragmented the foreigners were able to invade and occupy and eventually oppress and subjugate the country Yatindra says that we know that India had Vedic Sanskrit as the language. According to findings, it is more than twelve thousand years old. Then why does the Indus Valley Civilization language remain a question? Isn't it Vedic Sanskrit? And if it is not, isn't that a contradiction to the claim of Aryan invasion theory that the Vedas were written around two thousand five hundred BC? Because if they were, then then the Indus Valley Civilization scripts would have been in Vedic Sanskrit as well. Listen, a script is not a language. A language is not a script. you can write tamil in the kharoshti script 
You can write Tamil in the Brahmi script. You can also write Sanskrit in the Brahmi script. A script is merely a vehicle. It is not a language. Right? Now, we don't know what the so-called Harappan script is. We have not been able to decipher it. So we don't know what language it is. As far as you saying that according to findings, Sanskrit is more than 12,000 years old, no. Where does it? Where have you found this? What evidence do we have that Sanskrit is more than 12,000 years old? I am not saying it is not. It could very well be more than 12,000 years old. But we have no evidence of that. We need incontrovertible evidence to be able to make this claim. And no such evidence exists as of today. The oldest evidence of Sanskrit is from present-day Syria. The Mitanni kingdom, the great horse master Kekuli, who used Sanskrit terminology in his horse training manual. So this Mitanni kingdom was essentially an out-of-India migration that happened about 3,500 years ago. And that is the oldest evidence of written Sanskrit that we have today. If it is found that the Harappan script is indeed uh, depicting the Sanskrit language, then we will know that Sanskrit is more than five, 6,000 years old. As of today, we don't have the evidence of that. Right? The Aryan invasion theory claims that the Vedas were written, were written after 1500 BCE. This theory says that there was an invasion or migration about 1500 BCE or thereabouts. These foreign white-skinned Aryans came into India and they settled down in the Saptasindhu region. And after that, they started writing the Vedas. So according to this Aryan invasion myth, the Vedas were written somewhere around 1300 BCE, which is completely wrong. I mean, that is a completely different topic. So there are a number of misconceptions and all that. We don't know what the Indus Valley civilization language was because we have been unable thus far to decipher the script. Sanskrit is at least 3,500 years old and the Mitanni uh, evidence that we have of the Sanskrit in the Mitanni kingdom is of post-Vedic Sanskrit or, or late Vedic Sanskrit. It is not Rig Vedic Sanskrit. So it is clear that the Rig Veda was written before that. So there are all these different pieces of evidence that we need to put together to try and answer these very important questions. As of today, we don't have evidence that can conclusively demonstrate how old the Sanskrit language actually is. Kushal Gowda says, why was the Angkor Wat temple abandoned and why are no rituals performed there? So this is the greatest and largest Hindu temple in the known universe, the Angkor Wat temple complex. Cambodia, right? It's in, it's in Cambodia. So it has been found, the best evidence that we have tells us that there was a massive uh, episode of climate change. First, you had very extremely heavy rainfall for a very long period of time, which forced the people to abandon this, this temple complex. And then you had a period of extended drought. And that's why this place was completely abandoned. Right? So that's why this temple complex was abandoned. This great Nagara was ab abandoned. And that's why no rituals are performed there. And now Cambodia has become a Buddhist country. The Angkor Wat temple was also later repurposed into uh, 
a Buddhist temple, which is the same as a Hindu temple. It's the, it's the same thing, like I've said. Buddhism and Hinduism are exactly the same thing. There's no real difference. So that, in short, is why this temple complex was abandoned. And that's why it is now in ruins and no rituals are performed there. Okay, next question. Why was there no uprising or civil war against the Mughals, at least after Aurangzeb's rule? So, was there no uprising or civil war against the Mughals? Or, or war of independence against the Mughals? I mean, who were the Marathas? What were they doing? What did the great Shatrapati Shivaji do? He fought the Mughals. He fought Aurangzeb. The Peshwas after Shivaji. had See, Shivaji died young. He died too early. He died prematurely. If he had been able to rule for another, another 20-30 years, he alone possibly could have reconquered all of India from the Mughals. But he died prematurely. And then the Peshwas created the Maratha Empire and they were able to reconquer India from the Mughals. So there was clearly an uprising against these foreign barbaric occupiers of India. Let's take a look at this. What does this map show us? This shows that the Mughal Empire was annihilated by the Maratha Empire. The Maratha Empire was able to establish Hindavi Swaraj over India. It was able to conquer much of India, including parts of Afghanistan. So there you have it. There was clearly an uprising against the Mughals, a very successful uprising. This, okay. Why was there no communist revolution in India during the early 20th century, keeping in mind that the Russian revolution had occurred and even Indians were mostly workers in the British factories, both inside and outside India? It's because communism is completely antithetical to Indian culture. It is completely antithetical to dharmic culture. Communism is a dharma. Right? See, communism essentially is another form of the Abrahamic culture, nothing else. It also has one book, one prophet, and one religion. Their book is the Communist Manifesto or the Das Kapital. Their prophet is Karl Marx or Engels, or in some other flavors you have Mao, or Lenin, or Stalin. These are the various prophets. And then you have one religion, which is the religion of Marxism, or socialism, whatever they call it. It is completely antithetical to Indian culture. And that's why it never had any impact in India. It is only now, now that India has become increasingly deracinated, now that Indians have lost contact with their culture, India have Indians have lost their roots. It is now, today, in this new environment that communism and Marxism and socialism are taking root in India, in people's minds. Because the education system brainwashes students into believing these concepts as the right way of approaching the world. So during uh, the resistance against the British, India was very much still in, in, in touch with its cultural ethos. And that's why Marxism was not able to have any impact in India, any significant impact in India. Okay, next question. Are Yeti animals real or not in the Himalayas? It's an interesting question. So the, there is this uh, supposedly mythical creature called the Yeti that inhabits 
the Himalayas, in India, in Tibet, and other parts of uh, in other other parts of the Himalayan uh, mountain range. It's called the Yeti in Tibetan. It's also called the Migoi in some places, wild man or something like that. Me means human, I think. In this in the Tibeto-Burman languages, me means human. Migoi, I think it's called in some places. So it is believed to inhabit the regions of the Himalayas in Tibet, in Bhutan, in Sikkim too, Arunachal Pradesh, some regions also. Uh, do we have any evidence of this creature? Not really. There have been certain photographs taken by the Indian army recently in, in, in the past by British explorers of these very curious footprints, very large footprints in the snow in the Himalayas. Certain uh, bone fragments have also been found in some other uh, some other evidence of this creature like hair or, or, or skin etc has been found but it's not really been tested because it disappeared etc so is it possible that a large hominid creature could be a, could be living somewhere in the himalayas it is not impossible because this is a very forbidding mountain range much of it is unexplored only some peaks have been climbed but much of this mountain range is unexplored because it's so inhospitable so it is conceivably possible that some isolated population of such a hominid species could exist somewhere there. We know that other species of humans have lived until recently, like the Homo florensis, for instance, or the Denisovans, Neanderthals, etc. So maybe there is some archaic population isolated population of such creatures still alive possibly but the chances are very less the probability is very less maybe it's a myth maybe it's just a bear or maybe it's an ancient memory of an extinct species of hominid so we don't know for sure but most likely it looks like it may not be true Am I a spy? Because I can think, I can predict things accurately. No, I'm not a spy. I can, I'm, if, if you study enough history, if you study enough geopolitics, you're able to see patterns. You're able to see connections that maybe other people cannot see. And that's why it's easier to pre predict things accurately. It has nothing to do with spying. I'm not, <laughs> no spy. Uh, Monish says, how can we restore our knowledge that was lost during the destruction of our ancient libraries like in, in our universities like Nalanda, Shardapit, etc. See, the texts that we lost in these great destruct in these great fires will never come back. We have lost the um, records of thousands of years of our history. Much of it will is lost forever, unfortunately, sadly. There are still millions of ancient manuscripts that are gathering dust in various temples and other places that should be preserved, that should be restored, that should be digitized. It is the job of the government of India to do this. It is not being done. So actually there is still much, a great deal of knowledge that still is available to us, but it is slowly crumbling away into dust. So that is one thing the government of India needs to do. It needs to preserve these manuscripts. It needs to digitize these manuscripts so that they can be studied whenever there is time so that scholars have access to it. You know, that needs to happen. What also needs to happen is we need to start creating new knowledge. We need to reconnect with our 
civilizational ethos which is the worship of knowledge indians uh regard knowledge in the high, indians have a very high regard for knowledge i mean the, we know that very well even a person who is illiterate is is very respectful towards a person who is very well read for instance so in it is in our blood it's in our dna this respect for knowledge that we value knowledge so much so what needs to happen is we need to reform our education system and we need to start producing new knowledge that's what needs to happen india needs to become a world leader in the sciences in philosophy in culture in the arts again we can only do that if we reform our education system and and we create an education system that is geared towards producing new ideas and geared towards producing genuine leaders that's what needs to happen but the knowledge which was destroyed in the destruction and burning of all the universities and libraries that is unfortunately gone we will not be able to restore that aditya says how can we reverse the tremendous brainwashing and the destruction of self respect and morale done to us by the british and partially by our own ancestors how can we truly unite the country and its citizens irrespective of caste creed religion or language to ensure that whatever happened to our country from the invasion of gori etc to the independence of 47 because of our divisions never happens again good question uh how do we reverse the brainwashing the brainwashing has a very clear mechanism it is the indian education system the colonial education system that that produces sheep instead of leaders so you when a child is young before he or she goes to school it's full of curiosity it's full of this joy of life it's full of curiosity it's full of intelligence it's very inquisitive it's very creative the moment a child goes to school all of that is smashed out of the child and you're discouraged from asking questions you're only allowed to give answers you are not allowed to think critically you're not able allowed to disagree you are trained in obedience absolute unquestioning obedience and all of this eventually leads to the brainwashing it it conditions children's minds in such a manner that when they reach the right stage for example high school that's when all these colonial ideas are poured into their heads through the social sciences social studies education the humanities education and all the marxist socialist brainwashing that is done in the higher education system and all the fake history that is taught to them so this is the cause of the brainwashing and also because we are forced to study in english so that also puts every other language at an inferior status so it creates this sense of inferiority it creates this this slave mindedness so the first thing that needs to be done is to adopt our civilizational language as our national language again sanskrit secondly reform the education system get rid of all these people who have been brainwashing us and reform the system and thirdly we have to on our own individually of our own initiative try and look at the world in a different way it's all about reformulating how we think and how we approach the world for instance we believe that non violence and passivity is the solution to every problem what would mohandas gandhi do if india is invaded 
what should we do should we do satyagraha at the at the border what would gandhi do is is the only question that people ask so why don't we ask ourselves what would she do <laughs> what would the goddess kali do if there was an invasion of india if she had to face an invasion would she turn the other cheek would she go on a satyagraha no right so why does our culture why does our tradition hold a goddess this the, hold this form of the mother goddess in such high regard in high esteem it's clear that we envisioned situations and circumstances in which this form of the mother goddess should prevail over every other form over the maternal loving form of the mother goddess right so our ancestors understood that non violence and love is not the answer to every situation so why do we today only look at the gandhian perspective of everything non violence gandhi 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 we need to ditch this nonsense we need to train ourselves to be able to reformulate uh, questions and reframe questions so that's what needs to happen and of course the education system needs to change so all of this will hopefully contribute in undoing and reversing the tremendous brainwashing and the destruction of self respect and morale that's been done over the past 1000 years the 1000 years the, the millennium of humiliation the chinese have a century of humiliation india has a millennium of of humiliation we need to start understanding this that we have been we have undergone this 1000 years of humiliation only when we know this can we do something about it so we need to all educate ourselves and the government needs to change things change the education system okay that brings me to an end of these questions let me take some live questions some live questions okay so if you have any live any any questions that you would like to ask me you can ask me now okay what do we have priyansh says i want to know about kalpa vigraha the idol from 26460 bc i i am un- unfortunately not aware of what this is kalpa vigraha i'm not sure what it is i'll i'll try and look it up sorry indian adivasi history indian history is indian history we 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 need to stop dividing ourselves into adivasis and vanavasis and what not other vasis we're all indians our history is see every part of indian history is important it it is all significant but we are now trained into into seeing these small categories within ourselves so that in that that attitude needs to be we need to take a new look at the, the, the this thing you know we need to change our attitude india is an enormous civilization and the history of a certain segment adivasis i mean first of all do we even have adivasis this this is a category that has been created recently in ancient indian literature over the past 10000 years this word adivasi doesn't exist anywhere it only appeared during the colonial times so this is another example of people trying to divide india you know that's what it is parikshit ekbote says why do you hate ar rahman so much did i ever say i hate ar rahman i don't hate ar rahman i think he's a mediocre musician 
There is nothing special about him. I don't hate him. Why would I hate him? Okay, what else do we have? Some other questions. You said India is waiting for the next Chandragupta Maurya. But shouldn't we first make the system to allow, allow able to allow genuine leaders to take control and, and power? There might be a lot of such people today too. Listen, if you there are two kinds of changes. One is a revolutionary change and one is a reformative change. Reforms take a great deal of time. Revolutions are very destructive, but they can bring about change very fast. If you want to first reform the system gradually, slowly, it's going to take another 30, 50 years. Is India in a position to wait, wait the next 20, 30, 50 years to change its system so that now we can have good leaders emerging? No. A good leader, a great leader will emerge irrespective of whatever system is there. That's the, that's the defining characteristic of a great leader. He or she is able to overcome all kinds of adversity. So adversity is necessary for the emergence of a great leader. If you have a very easy system in which great leaders can emerge, then you will have good leaders emerging all the time. But great leaders won't emerge. Great leaders emerge only in times of adversity. And I would say that the time is right now. Okay, some other questions. Kishore asks a good question. What if the government doesn't change the education system? Then we will need to find ways of educating ourselves or our children. Maybe maybe people need to think more seriously about homeschooling or to or other other things, you know. Because right now the world is changing. This pandemic has 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 changed the entire way we approach education. Today all learning is done online. But very soon what's going to happen is that all jobs are going to be skills-driven, skills-based. Skills will become more important than paper degrees. Paper degrees will very soon become worthless. It's going to happen within this decade. So all of this, uh, this commercial education system, which essentially churns out paper degrees in exchange for lakhs of rupees, it's going to become obsolete. It will happen naturally. It's going to happen. So, you know, there are these forces of nature, so to say, or forces of society, which force change, whether the government likes it or not. The government will want to keep this system alive because they are most comfortable with it. The government and the bureaucracy don't like change, but things will change anyway. It's just a matter of time. But will it change in the right direction is the question. All right, let me take one more question. Look, I don't know about the Karkota dynasty, whether it was related to the Scythians or not. Uh, clearly, there is there is uh, similarities between the in the territorial expanse of the sun god being the being the primary deity. It is possible the Karkota dynasty is clearly a post-Scythian invasion dynasty. So yeah, there could be some Scythian elements in the king uh, kings or the kings of the Karkota dynasty. It's, it's quite possible. I'm sure everybody in northern and western India has some Scythian ancestry. And we know that the Scythians also had, themselves had Indian ancestry. It's a circular thing. It's not really important whether they were related to the Scythians or not. They were, the Karkotas were an Indian dynasty and that's what it is. So that's the answer in brief. Okay, Yusinor says, where do we find evidence of Buddha's deathbed discourse where he said he believes 
in the soul and accepts the authority of the Vedas. Any specific book to refer? Let me try and pull it up online right now. Just give me a minute. Just a minute. Let me Google that up. Let me share this article with you. So this is an article by Dr. Subhash Kak, who has appeared on this uh, on this YouTube channel. The article is called The Buddha in the Veda. It does contain references to what you're asking. So what you what we need to do is we need to find ways of of discovering information. If you want to know about Buddha's deathbed discourse, the first thing we should do is to Google it. And it's all available online in the public domain. The actual translation of the Mahaparinirvana discourse is available online. And I think this article itself has links to that, if I am not mistaken. So take a little bit of initiative, Google it, and you will you will discover the truth. So the article's name is, the article is called The Buddha and the Veda. The author is Dr. Subhash Kak. I hope that answers your question. Let me take one more question for today. Uh, let me see. Something I have not answered, something that is relevant to history. Okay. Latha Swaminathan says, were Brahmins really evil? Why is there so much anti-Brahmin hatred in India? Brahmins, Brahmins were not powerful people. They were the people who were in charge of preserving and propagating our ancient knowledge. The people in power, in political power, were the Kshatriyas. They were the aristocracy, the nobility of India. Political power always flows from either the barrel of a gun or from the blade of a sword. It doesn't come from knowledge. Knowledge is not really power. It is the potential for unleashing violence that gives birth to political power. And that always was in the hands of the Kshatriyas. So how are Brahmins evil? The reason there is so much anti-Brahmin hatred in India is because these people, the so-called liberals, the Marxists, and this, this entire ecosystem, they want to stamp out Hinduism from India. And Hinduism, all the knowledge, all the traditions were preserved and still are to some extent by the Brahmins. So they want to demonize the Brahmins so that these traditions die out with them. And it is all done by various political parties and various academic cliques and cabals, etc. And so on. So that is in brief why there is so much anti-Brahmin sentiment and hatred in India. That's it. Okay, I think I think I think that's it for today. It's uh, been a very interesting session, very long, nice session. Thank you so much for all the questions. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So I will see you very soon. I will see you next week. Next week is going to be different. I will put out the schedule tomorrow or day after, most likely tomorrow morning, India time. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much. Thank you very much again. And I will see you very soon. Have a good day. Have a good night.
बाय